This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Guess what? It's the Santita Jackson Show with Santita Jackson. I am back. Happy 2024, everybody. It's a joy to be with you today. Morning stars, do not fret. I have been moving. I have been moving, so we're not quite set up with StreamYard yet, but we will be next week, so we'll be able to be in community with one another. But we can still do that. I want you to call me today at 773-763-WCPT, 773-763-9278 as I come to you from the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, uh, WCPT, based here in Chicago. We will be ground zero for the Democratic Convention coming up in the summer of 2024. And, of course, AM 950 Radio. We're going to be re- welcoming our brothers and sisters from Minneapolis, St. Paul. You all have so much going on up there with Ilhan Omar. I mean, and you've got a congressman challenging President Biden. You've got Amy Klobuchar. Whoa! I can't wait to get AM 950 Radio. I can't wait to get up there, and I cannot wait to get you all down here for this convention. It's going to be a great, 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 grand old time. Everybody, what are we going to be talking about today? Really, we're talking about the opportunity or opportunities that the left, that progressives, that Democrats, that those who want to move the country forward have. Uh, We see so much activity with the Republicans because they actually are having an honest-to-goodness primary season. Democrats are not. I think that's a dangerous thing, and we shut down debate. Nothing is happening. We have made the process so arduous and onerous that you can't have a Robert Kennedy. You can't have a Cornell West. They've been boxed out. That, to me, um, is not a good thing. We should be having discussions, debates. It makes us healthier. It makes us stronger. But there are some lessons that we're seeing with all of the intra-family squabbling that you see in all families, that you're seeing in the Jewish community right now. Uh, What lessons can we derive from them? And what lessons are you learning in this time in which we have these white, hot issues that are dividing families, that are dividing communities. Let's talk about that. And then uh, Ari Bloomcatch, he always brings it, my goodness, from, of course, he is the editor of In These Times. He just believes that President Biden has become his own worst enemy in 2024 and that it is time for someone else. What do you think? with these poll numbers that continue to drop. What is going on? Or do you have an answer uh, that can help President Biden, who is now, according to reports, becoming upset with his staff? He's like, hey, what's going on? What is he missing? What is he missing? Uh, you tell me. And, of course, we're talking about the economy. That's part of what's being missed here. Have you tried to buy eggs lately? Dr. Max Wolf will be on talking with us about that. And, of course, we've got Dr. Shanita Knight giving us some health information, health and wellness, infection prevention, and, of course, Pastor Darius Brooks. So let's get to it, everybody. we got a lot going on with these headlines. Henry, take me away. At least 95 people were killed in blast on Iran yesterday. Two explosions struck the central city of Kerman, where thousands had gathered to commemorate a general assassinated by the U.S. in 2020. Who did it? According to the Washington Post, local officials said it was a terrorist attack. 
There was no immediate claim of responsibility by a U.S. official, according to uh, according to the U.S. government, suggested it was a group such as the Islamic State, but we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Hundreds of documents in the Jeffrey Epstein case were released yesterday. A judge ordered the release as part of a case against the sex offender's former partners. Ghislaine Maxwell, his former girlfriend, who is in prison as we speak. The documents mention people like Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Prince Andrew, and so many others. It is eye-popping. We will see, everybody, a lot of people have been to that island. Mm, and uh, Jeffrey Epstein's story is very interesting, as uh, many people claim he was part of intelligence mm, and was using the honey pot to trap politicians, you know, get you compromised sexually. Mm-hmm. Former President Trump asked the U.S. Supreme Court to keep him on Colorado's primary ballot. The former president wants to reverse a ruling from Colorado's top court last month that disqualified him over the January 6, 2021 attack. And Chicago will have a high of 33 degrees, partly cloudy Minneapolis, St. Paul, 27 degrees clear with clouds. This weekend, the Bears will be facing off against the Packers. The Vikings will be facing off against the Lions. College football, it is bowl season through January. In the NBA, the Knicks 116, the Bulls 100, the Pelicans 117, the Timberwolves 106 in the NFL, the Chicago will be playing the Rangers, and, and of course, the Wild will be playing the Lightning. And, um, hmm, and that is, those are the headlines, everybody. We've got Pastor Darius Brooks, Grace Central Church. He and I are on our way to Detroit next Friday. We're going to be participating in a big event that uh, that Wayne State University is putting on to commemorate and celebrate the life of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. I'm so honored that he will be uh accompanying me because, of course, he and I have been working together musically. We attach at the hip. I'm so honored to have this icon um, who's been guiding me musically for 20 years, and I cannot wait for us to get up to Detroit. But in the meantime, Happy New Year. I know that you have been feeding people, not just spiritually, but literally, through the holidays. How did that go, and how can we get some food right now? Because <laughs> people are so <laughs> Can you hear me? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it's so amazing. Actually, we're so excited since he did feeding people, seeing at least hundreds of families, close to 450 families this Christmas <laughs> holiday. Both. We do like Christmas, each holiday, we do Christmas and New Year's. And it's been such a, a blessing, um, uh, really helping these people. Get food. Grace Central Church, 10216 South Kitchener Street, Westchester, Illinois, every Tuesday from 5 to 7. And on Wednesdays, we do seniors from noon to 2, so they won't be out in um, in the evening late. And Santita, we do this every week, not just holidays. I see people like, like this week, we starting again. We're getting ready to start again with the volunteers and the team. It's kind of sort of like Christmas every week for those who really don't have. And I thank God that in this mess age, that to us who are real clear, he sends a clear message that does not stop people of God. And this, which goes to the message today. Uh, <laughs> uh, and 
you said it today. I, you scare me sometimes, Santita, because I've always asked God to make sure my word, my way, my presence is relevant. Uh, and sometimes we got to be careful when we when we say God is a part of what we're doing, when he wants peace, love, joy, and life and more abundantly, which is who God is. He's compassionate. It's not about a religious order. It's about how having him creates character, integrity, and a purpose to make ourselves and the world better. That's what God is all about. It's not Again, it's not a religious. I don't know who this is for. It's not. It's a purpose that down here in the world, the people that he has chosen as gifted people, and I say gifted because every good and perfect gift comes from God. It's literally assigned, aligned, and designed to do good. Proverbs one fifteen: a wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding obtain wise counsel. This is Proverbs 115. I won't be long, Santita, but if I had to use the thought unmanageable moments, unmanageable moments, most people spend time with others like themselves. That's not out of prejudice. It's just how we were raised growing up. I remember our mama used to say, birds of a feather flock together. They shared this with us, things like this, because they wanted us to be what they wanted us to be, or they didn't want us to be like others. We were allowed to have a different kind of choice, basically, to either get in trouble or not get in trouble. But the indication was that people naturally gravitate towards each other to be like each other. Since you're trying to figure things out without God is crazy. It could put us in some weird places. And I'm closing here. Santita, maybe the journey isn't about becoming anything. Maybe it's about unbecoming everything. It really isn't who God created us to be, his way. That you, me, may in all things want us to be happy the way he wants us to be happy. Always you're learning, always increasing learning. You just said this a second ago, knowing that God doesn't make mistakes. You just said debates that make us healthier and stronger, learning. You just said what lessons are we learning about what's going on. You just said this out of your mouth. God's word, no matter what, always manages well. Put moments in God's hand that he and only he alone can manage well. Because often pain is unmanageable, but wonderfully our healing is. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me, Pastor? Oh, that's that. There you Can go. you hear me? Now. Okay. Yes. You know, I mean, I think part of, part, you know, part of the challenge, I think, though, Pastor Brooks, is that, um, you know, when you're in pain, you know, when, when you when you're in the hospital, they tell you to get ahead of the pain, right? And so you try to take the meds just to, to get ahead of the pain so you can take the edge off because once you are in pain, you're, you're in crisis. And you can over-medicate, right? You can overdo because, ouch, give me some relief. How do you, are there any warning signs that we have that there's danger ahead in life? Absolutely. If you think education is expensive, you should try ignorance. 
absolutely mm-hmm. watch this. Proverbs just says a wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding attains wise counsel. This is for one way. I often share with Grace Hensel, and this is real talk, Santita. God puts things in our spirit. We just don't listen to him. Santita, he's an amazing God. And I tell Grace Hensel this, and I know it's true. When he gives us things, they're there for our learning, for our observing. But sometimes we pay no attention to them. Often we're in attendance. More often than not, we never pay attention. Because we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and I'm not talking about scripture. Since see, this kind of so like when you get off a program and there are things in your mind to do and thoughts. Often the things that hurt us are, are, that are unmanageable are moments of distractions that catches us off guard. Because when we remain focused, even in our flesh, we have one of the greatest gifts God has ever given us is the gift of choice. We could choose whatever we want. But Santini, we can't choose the consequences of our choices. The world is designed to take us off our square. But Santita, just as you plan your program and you plan things not to happen, they do. But you know what mom and them used to say, Santita, it's better to have a star and not reach for it than not to have a star at all. Often when we're doing things, Santita, we're going about not learning or for one one. And things. Santita, this last year, there were some things I wanted to do that I made up my mind I did I'm not gonna do it. Because what I needed to do that was in front of me was most important. And if we operate in this place when it comes to God and ourselves, God does more protecting than he does rewarding. And I tell Grace Central mm-hmm. often, an ounce of prevention is worth more than the pound of cure. Santita trying to get that pain out in the hospital. <laughs> there was a way you could have did that by not eating that chicken. Not a criticism, mm. just an observation. <laughs> no, 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 it, but no, no, no. But it is a criticism, but it is a loving critique. I think we have to okay. get away from this space. That's part of why we're in the political space that we're in. You know mm-hmm. how to be critical. And it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, you need to be critical. That way we can grow. That's only, well, I mean, I God is critical all the time. That's why God has yeah, do's yeah. and don'ts. Yeah, I, but, but I like that, what you said, and i got to be careful because I want to be wise. That's what the Word of God just said. He that when the souls are wise because sometimes people think criticizing them is bad, but I, that's one of my quotes that I said, not a criticism, just an observation, because I want to soften this thing to let one know that I'm not really criticizing you if this is what it appears to be, but an observation says, look at this. But you know what I say? But help me with this, Pastor, because my thing is, no, it is a criticism. What I'm not doing is tearing you down. I'm building you up. Right, 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 right. You know, right. I mean, but at some point, the- we are too soft with people, I think. And it's like, look, hey, you're out of order here. But that having yeah, been I said, <laughs> if I correct you, you can get you can get on track here. I mean, that, I mean you know my you know my mother, and she is the first thing she's going to do is spot the flaw. <laughs> now you know that. Now come on. That's mama all day and wait and do it lovingly or in a way that you get it. You are absolutely right, Santita. And this is what the word of God says about a person who's learning. You the word of God says, How could two walk together except they be agreed? And he means just what he says, or if there's not a power agreement, there needs to be an understanding. The principal thing is wisdom, but in all that getting, get understanding. Santita, I've learned you're gonna make me run this morning. 
I that's in the, in the song of your will. It says there are some lessons that I had to learn. To learn. It was, yeah, it was not an option. And one of them is when you are being you and being your thoughts, you will offend people because when you are being you and not what people want you to be, just on GP, they are offended. So you cannot help that. You have to be yourself. You have to be one you are often tell people. If you become one you, you might have to reintroduce yourself to you because a lot of times we've created a lot of things that we now have to learn to create because we try to accommodate people and that's not who we are. So unlearning some things is was the lesson today or what you said. What is it that we're learning? Because that's the key right now in this season, 2024. What have we learned? We eight days or four days into this new year. And they're talking about it's all new. People of God, if you're getting up doing the same thing you did in 2023, nothing's new. So what are we learning in context of really learning how to do things uniquely different? You said it today, big time. And you do it in debate. You do it in debates. You, you do it and well, that's your thought. This is our thought. But now the way we accomplish things is strength. But St. Peter, you will you, make me happy this morning. The Word of God works whether it's a negative or positive. Watch this. He says where there's unity, there is strength. So if you've got a person on this side that's not godly or ungodly or who are wicked, and they get a whole lot of people together, and then you and me and uh, Sunita Knighton get together and we love God, but we don't strengthen ourselves to get together and fight, these people over here that's going to get together, they're going to whoop our butts. The principles of the Word of God works, people. He says, I reign on the just as well as the unjust. So whoever's listening to me, you got to get with a group of people who mean well, who do well, put that strength together, mm. and we just stand by ground. Well, you know what? How yeah, can we I, get this food? How can we worship with you? And how can we get this food? Because I just got a, a dozen eggs, and it was a whole <laughs> lot of money. <laughs> well, I'll bring you some tomorrow. <laughs> Thank Great you. What what up two sixteen South Kitchener Street, Westchester, Illinois, Tuesday from five to seven for of the pub, general public. We serve eight different townships, and then Wednesdays from noon till two to seniors, and, and we give two to three hundred dollars worth of food. As a matter of fact, eggs, milk, ham, chicken, or poultry, uh, 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 meats, uh, produce, stuffing. Uh, we give everything, girl. Cheese, government cheese, that real cheese in those little boxes. Hello. <laughs> One of, my, one of my resident assistants when I was in college used to get the government cheese. Her grandmother used to send her this big chunk, and we could not wait. <laughs> we would run up to her room because it was really great tasting cheese. Look, everybody, Pastor Darius Brooks. Yes, that Darius Brooks, the Grammy Award winner, of course, pastor of Grace Central Church in Westchester, Illinois. Very quickly, how can we worship with you? Great Central Church, 10216 South Kitchener Street, Westchester, Illinois, 1030 till noon, 1030 till noon. I love you, Pastor Darius. Can't wait with you next Thursday and up in Detroit, in, as they say, in the D. I love it. <laughs> Everybody, you've got Ari Bloomcat, who's now part of the family on the Santita Jackson Show, the editor of In These Times Magazine, Rebecca Wilkerson, and, um, and Dania Mozendra. We're going to be talking about what the left needs to do to come together. It's a moment. We have a moment where we can come together and do some great things. We're seeing the right do it. What about the left? What about progressives? Call me at 773-763-9278. What are your ideas? 
Call me back on the Santita Jackson Show. Back in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Santita Jackson Show, I want you to call me. Hey, happy 2024 at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT, coming to you from WCPT. The nation's largest progressive talk radio station, Chicago's Progressive Talk, and AM 950 Radio, the voice of Progressive Minnesota. What a joy it is to be with you today, everybody. You know, I've been in the midst of a move. Oh, my gosh, it's been a lot of life, but I'm still here. I'm still here. You know what? I love In These Times magazine because they really, independent media is growing, it's flourishing, but it can only grow, grow and flourish as you support it. So I do hope that you will get a subscription to this magazine. Oftentimes they give it away for free because they want you to have the information. There's a tremendous article, Don't Let the Flailing Center Box Out the Left Powerful Possibilities. Haven't you noticed when you look at the corporate media, they're always telling you it's the independents that are going to drive this. It's the center. Um, Yeah, but no. They're always trying to drive the left and progressives out of the conversation, always trying to do that. And so let's talk about that, because there's some powerful lessons that we can learn from what we're seeing in the Jewish community, this intra-family fight that they're having right now, that quite frankly, so many of us are having within our families, personally, institutionally, in America, the right, the left, the center, whatever, whatever. I mean, and, and it's not as simple as right and left, is it not? No, it's not. I mean, we're all a mix of a lot of things, but there is the, it's really the programming of the corporatists to pull, uh, to really bury the left, to bury progressives. And we're being told by, Rebe- by Rebecca Vilcomerson, Jewish Voice for Peace, she's been on this show before, um, and she has an upcoming book, Solidarity is the Political Version of Love. I love that, Rebecca. Lessons from Thank Jewish Anti-Zionism. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love that because we've got to put love back into the political and social conversation. That was what Dr. King taught us. It's got to be at the center. And Dania Rajendra, I'm so glad that you're with us. In these times, Diaspora Alliance, the Athena Coalition, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. And this piece, Ari, that you brought to me, editor of In These Times, is really, really powerful, and it's full of a lot of lessons. Don't let the flailing center, and they are flailing, box out the left powerful possibilities. Indeed, public factors within the Jewish communities provoked by the Gaza genocide and so many other things that have been building, right, Rebecca and Dania and Ari. Well, there is a path forward. There is a path forward. And in spite of the pushback, people on the left are actually organizing and they're coming together. We're coming together. So, you know, Ari, why don't you introduce uh, our two guests who are really family now, because after you, after you've been on one time, Rebecca, your family, talk to us about this article. Why did you feel, why did In These Times feel compelled to, to put it out there? 
Uh, thanks so much again, Tantina, and it's great to be on the show um, with everybody this morning. You know, I think, you know, um, this piece is so powerful in a lot of ways, but in particular, one of the reasons I find it so powerful is that it answers a question that folks have been, you know, whispering about a little bit, but not really asking directly. And that question, which is possibly the most profound question the left needs to be asking itself right now, is simply, what is this all for? Like, what are we even doing right now? We're out in the streets, we're filling train stations, we're blocking consulates, we're shutting down bridges, sitting in at politicians' offices. And what, and we've seen this like absolutely monumental surge in activism and organizing. We've seen this huge activation of people around the issue of Palestine that we've never seen activated before and entering the movement before. And the question, you know, fundamentally, um, that I with this article is what are we doing? What do we really mean when we say we're shutting it down? What do we mean when we say we're disrupting business as usual? What is it that we're trying to do and where is it that we're trying to go? And, you know, it was a real honor to, um, you know, be an editor on this article and there are a lot, a lot of powerful things about it. Um, but one of the things um, about uh, Rebecca and Dania here is, you know, they are leaders of our community. They are thought leaders in our communities. They are thought leaders on the left and organizational and activist leaders on the left and are honestly the perfect people to write this piece um, in so many ways and to help chart a path forward on the left. And it's also, you know, largely in many ways like symbolic, you know, a lot of folks don't realize that the anti-occupation movement um, on the Jewish left is largely, um, you know, led by women and queer folk. Um, and you know, once again, it's women and queer folk who are showing us all, you know, what the possibilities are for moving our world forward. Um, and, uh, you know, I should really just turn it over to um, Danielle and Rebecca right now because, you know, they're the ones with um, the piece and, uh, and can explain it best. Just want to mention real quick that we co-published the piece um, with our comrades over at Truth Out, and I'm just yes. really grateful for them as well. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know... Rebecca, let's start with you. Uh, the center flailing, what do you mean? They're the ones who are supposed to be saving us if I look at corporate media. <laughs> yes, thank you so thank you so much, Sentita and, and Ari, for that those, that beautiful introduction. We're so like honored to be part of your family now, Sentita. Now that we're oh, second once it's the second time it's a tradition. That's what we always say in my family. So um Bless your heart. Very much you know you know what that means. Families are messy and nutty. So you're here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, yeah, Dania and I, you know, we wrote this piece partially because we felt like we were going a little bit crazy um, in, you know, and we wrote it over the course of about six weeks because in a lot of ways, the rhetoric that we were hearing online and in the media was so different from what we were experiencing as part of a broad like emerging grassroots, really powerful movement on the streets that was actually, especially at the beginning, was when the, the, the call for ceasefire was not mainstream at all, that that movement really moved the call for ceasefire into the mainstream. Um, so we really wanted to name some of the dynamics that we were seeing in, in the community that we we're a part of, the, one of the communities that we're a part of, the Jewish community, and, and like you were saying, like draw some larger lessons um, for the left, which we also are a part of, and to counter and to challenge some of the most harmful rhetoric that we see, like 
both within the Jewish community and being recounted as part of the mainstream narrative. So some of those things are like the idea that Jews in this moment are isolated, that we're alone, that we're unprotected, that we're in danger, um, that anti-Semitism is the primary thing we need to worry about right now. Those are all things that, of course, everybody should be vigilant about, everyone on the left should be vigilant about. But what, in fact, we see is that Jewish people in this country are actually overall safe and that who's actually being targeted in this moment are Arabs and Muslims and people of color who are speaking out for Palestine. And so that that rhetoric is really distorting what the political conversation should be about. Um, and that most importantly, that there's, there's actually, like I was saying, a very broad and strong and grassroots left that very much includes Jews. Um, that's a model for multiracial organizing and that, you know, we don't want to overstate it because we have not stopped the genocide. And that's something that I think drives all of us every day to keep doing the work that we're doing. Um, but that there are great opportunities for these emerging configurations, which like includes parts of the labor movement, people of color led coalitions like the rising majority, groups like DSA, the JVP, um, standing for racial justice. You know, there's a huge coalition that's really emerged that's that's doing this work and that is, you know, powerfully leading their narrative. So, you know, so, so Gina, you said that we were very thorough, which was a very kind way to saying that the article is very long, and so there's a lot within it. No, no, um, no, no. Oh, you oh. know what? <laughs> I have to tell you, you no, know what I, I appreciated that you covered the waterfront. You didn't just go to college campuses. You looked at the ADL. You looked at these organizations that that purport to be civil rights organizations who are now coming under fire because you're saying, wait a minute, but they stand with the right wing, right? And so right. when I say very thorough, I mean, it needs, first of all, goodness gracious, give you, let us take the time and understand what's going on. It's not as simple as just what's happening on the college campuses. It's happening everywhere, Rebecca. I right. mean, and, and, you know, yeah, I, I think right. that, I think that your, your, your article, first of all, you put the time into it. And I think that people, we, I, as a reader, and as someone who is curious and who wants to make change, I think that you deserve my time. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate that very much. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know, Daniel. You maybe you want Daniel. You might want to bring out some of the other because I gave that's a big overview. So I don't know if you want to pull out some of the other threads. Yeah. Well, first of all, Santita, thank you so much for having us, and Ari, thank you for such a lovely introduction, and also for giving us the space we needed to develop the kind of thorough uh, um, argument because it, it's not. I think part of what the center and the corporate media, as you were saying, Santita does is like dumb it down. But actually this Mm -hmm. is really a huge set of complexities and it doesn't make sense unless you look at it um, less from inside the conversation and more from a bit of a remove. I am thinking about what you said about family and in particular, my family, I love them and they are nutty. And um, one advantage I feel like I've been having in this moment that has been such a special thing to share with Rebecca as we've worked out what we think and how we feel is that um, I'm mixed. My mom was Jewish and my dad was not. And um, Jewish communities and Jewish families, like almost everybody else in this country, um, can be deeply insular. 
and the center itself is deeply insular. And so I think one reason it's flailing is because inside the centrist bubble, it seems perhaps evenly matched between people who are like, "Mm, maybe collective punishment isn't great. And like, well, like, let's just do this thing. And I think if you step out of that bubble, it's clear the vast majority of people in the United States, no matter what they think about the whole gamut of politics, clearly thinks that what's happening right now in Gaza is a travesty, is a catastrophe. I don't even know, Rebecca, if we, like, all the synonyms we've come up with cannot convey the heartbreak and the horror. And um, I find that, like, very comforting because I also feel that way, and that's not what we read or what we see on TV. And um, so, as Rebecca said, we've been having this kind of toggle experience where in the streets or in our communities, we're aligned and we're making sense of it in ways that comport with our values. And then in the other sphere that we talk about, the ADL, et cetera, et cetera, it's like, you know, inside out world or upside down world. And how do we understand someone like the head of the ADL, like targeting college kids as the face of the danger to American Jews while giving Elon Musk, Elon Musk, a pass. And so we spent the time to try to figure out what's happening with that and also um, to acknowledge that this uh, conflict can really take up all your time and brain space, just the same way that when you fight with your, I mean, when I'm in an argument with my spouse, it's real hard to think about something else. Thankfully, we don't have that many of them. But, like, that's kind of what it feels like is one of those family arguments. And part of our piece is, like, yes, we are having a family argument. It is unlikely to convince, you know, the center to pick their socks up off the floor. Um, but over here, where we are in the streets and we are in our meetings and we are, you know, in our communities, we are having these like profound and beautiful experiences and it would be a disservice to our politics to only be consumed with the mess that is the center and miss out on the incredible work that is happening even as we've been unable to stop the travesty across. Ari, Rebecca? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one of I'm, the I'm on mute. Things... You know, you all, if, if I may say, you, you talk about the confounding middle. And you talk about the false isolation. And I want you to talk about that because we are seeing black and Palestinian American students getting docked at these schools uh, I mean, and you're giving white white people being given a pass, right, even as they come out supportive of Palestinians. And um, we've seen Amy Schumer's comments. We've seen, you know, just different people. Um, and, I, and I know they mean well, Rebecca and Dania and Ari, they mean well. But there is a sense that, um, that something is off here. When you talked about this, 
this false isolation. I, I want you to talk about that because you do have a lot of Jewish kids on these campuses and a lot of people who are saying, you know what, I feel, I don't feel safe and I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that. But you're saying that there's a brand of false isolation and fear-mongering discourse that, that we really need to be careful of. Does anyone want to speak to that? Hey, Rebecca. Yeah. I'll, I'll, um, oh, you go first and I'll follow. Okay. Sorry. Um, well, I just, yes, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Santita, I have a little story about that, which is that I have a friend. I live, my husband's Israeli and I lived in Israel for three years. And so I have a friend who I met there, who's also, um, American Jewish and is married to an Israeli and she teaches at Barnard and she was, has been talking to me about how she keeps on getting calls from, from family members and friends in Israel who keep, ask, keep calling her and saying, like, are you safe on campus? Are you safe on campus? And she keeps on saying, yes, of course I'm safe on campus. What are you talking about? Like, you are so much more unsafe than, than I am here. And they just don't believe her. And so I think so there's something very I mean, I would say it's weird, except for the fact that it actually has its roots in many, many decades of rhetoric within the Jewish community, both in Israel and in the United States. Um, and I think that's something important for us to be talking about, which is that, you know, what's happened since October 7th is so huge in terms of the level of ethnic cleansing and the genocide and um, the, the complicity of the United States. But a lot of what we're seeing is really just an escalation of um, trends that existed before, well before October 7th. So that includes the dispossession of Palestinians. That includes the rifts in the Jewish community. That includes the like messianic fascism of the Israeli government. Like all those things were present long before October 7th. Um, but they're just much more stark and clear now. And I think for a long time, the weaponization of accusations of anti-Semitism have been a tool to repress voices speaking out for Palestinians. And the main people who are attacked by those accusations are very much, like you're saying, Santita, are people of color, Palestinian people, certainly, Arab people more generally, Muslim people, and black people. And we see that from top to bottom. We see, you know, Dr. Claudine Gay, who was just um, forced to resign from, from Harvard. We see um, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who are representatives in Congress, who are attacked constantly, not on the substance of what they're supporting, but on the idea that they're being anti-Semitic by supporting Palestinian freedom. So one of the things we wanted to do in the piece was really try to untangle um, the idea that um, saying things like, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free or let Gaza live, the idea that those are anti-Semitic statements when they're actually statements that are that are calling for freedom for Palestinians. And that just this morning, on, I was on Twitter right before I got on, this, on, on, on your show, and Jennifer Gardner's daughter, <laughs> this is just a silly thing, she was wearing a watermelon um, sweatshirt, a sweatshirt that had a watermelon, which is a symbol of Palestinian resistance, in, shaped in the in the map of um, Israel and Palestine, and there's a huge campaign on Twitter now calling her anti-Semitic. So the idea that like a, a watermelon can be anti-Semitic, you know what I mean? It's this kind of level of rhetoric that's just so um, blatantly trying to shut down any expressions of solidarity with Palestinian people, um, and the like really gross use of accusations of anti-Semitism that I think puts also puts the Jewish community in danger because it makes it so much harder to call out 
actual anti-Semitism. So I think all of us, both within the Jewish community, and I will also say outside the Jewish community, it's incumbent upon us to um, call out call out false accusations of anti-Semitism and make sure that we're um, being very, very careful about um, calling out real anti-Semitism, you know, as separate from that. Hmm. But it it feels almost like you're redefining what anti-Semitism has become. I mean, because Semites also include Arabs. I'm like, this is real. This is really... um, there's There's just so much that is off about this discussion, Dania. And it's got to be corrected, you know? Well, I think that one of the things that we talk about in our piece is, like, we can see the parts that we can influence, but we can, you know, the center, as Rebecca said, it is the left that puts ceasefire into the center of the conversation. So we have a lot of power. Also, we have a lot of power on our own side. And so... I want to shout out, um, I'm on the International Advisory Board of the Diaspora Alliance, and it is focused along, you know, among many others who have been doing this work a long time about understanding what anti-Semitism is and what anti-Semitism isn't. And I think on the left, um, because anti-Semitism, first of all, because some of the people who are making these outrageous, ridiculous, racist, misogynist, terrible claims about, you know, watermelon shirts and beyond that, much more serious claims about making sure people don't have jobs or taking jobs away or, you know, the people who have been attacked, especially in Chicago, you know, where folks are still mourning, I would imagine, that little boy. Um, This idea that, like, it's about us as Jews as opposed to an effective way to limit our political horizons about Palestine, but about so much else, right? Like mm-hmm. long before yeah. October 7th, um, Representative Omar was often on the receiving end of anti- attacks about anti-Semitism for a number of things, including being one of the most prominent members of Congress fighting for real housing policy in the United States that would mean that people have real houses, right? Working people, poor people, people of color. And so it's, it's, I think when we can include but move beyond the harm to Jewish people, obviously, as a Jewish person, I think that's important. But I think it's not just about that. It's about really having the rigorous analysis about why are these people using these charges now? Why is it working in a way that other um, allegations maybe have not been, and how do we understand that and counter that and build a solidarity that can withstand that on our side? Um, that's really important. And, um, you know, there is a whole conversation about redefining anti-Semitism to conflate it with um, opposition to Israel and Israel's policies, which is just atrocious, um, but we saw it in Congress. We've seen it in some of these anti-boycott efforts in states. And again, it is about holding powerful people and powerful institutions, especially capital, to account. 
And so I think if I may speak also for Rebecca, like one of the things we hope for in writing this piece is that we might invite our comrades into thinking about like, well, what is this pattern of anti-left rhetoric and action? And how does that help us be in better solidarity with our with our Muslim and brown comrades? You know, I've got one minute, Ari. You know, and this leads us into the 2024 election where people are organizing. And we're going to be pivoting to what you wrote. I mean, I mean, to another article from in these times about Biden and how he's kind of put himself up against the wall. Ari? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to continue the conversation with everybody because really these two articles, you know, really flow together um, in a lot of ways. You know, Santita, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the 10-7 project and sort of about the desperation that the 10-7 project um, was signaling from our legacy Jewish institutions. And, you know, we're talking about the American Jewish Committee, the Jewish Federation, the ADL, APAC, and the Conference of Presidents um, here. And one of the things that um, Danielle and Rebecca talk about in the article is how much our Jewish institutions have failed and are failing right now and how much they are trying to simultaneously co-opt the moment. And I generally deeply hate people who make Shakespeare references, but this is sort of a Macbeth-type situation in which we have these like ridiculously paranoid um, legacy Jewish institutions that are you know, lashing out at anyone that they possibly can that they think might potentially be criticizing Israel in any possible way whatsoever. And it's a complete and total disservice to the American Jewish communities. And not only is it a disservice, it's actually quite violent um, against these communities mm. and against what we're trying to do right now. And in particular, that we're calling for peace in this moment. We're calling for ceasefire and we've got these legacy Jewish institutions that do not represent the American Jewish public, that do not represent American Jewish communities that are trying to hold on to this pro-war stance as best as they possibly can. And I think one of the things that's encouraging in this moment is that they are failing and they are desperate and it is coming through deeply. We saw the resignation yesterday of a very high-profile ADL official, and I think that signals a lot. Well, let's talk about it, everybody. Let's talk about it, because really, it's Jewish institutions, but it's the right wing that we're getting the pushback from. We need to be clear on that. Let's talk about it on the Santita Jackson Show. Back in just a few minutes. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. Oh, yes, we can. We can change the world. We can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. Yes, it's Santita and I'm a guest host. Hey, you know, I've been moving, 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 and it has been arduous, but 
I am 85% of the way there. Yay, yay, yay. It's a joy to be with you in 2024. We've got a lot going on in this season, and we are here for it. I'm coming to you from WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. Of course, we will be ground zero for the Democratic Convention coming up this summer, and we cannot wait to bring you in and to bring my AM 950 radio family up there in Minnesota. You've got someone running for president who's saying, I love Biden, but you know what? He's out of step. You've got Amy Klobuchar. You've got Ilhan Omar. We have got so much up in Minnesota. And we've got so much here. And let's talk about Biden being his own worst enemy. Ari Bloomcats, uh, the editor of In These Times magazine, has brought this story to us. They have such great, great information in, uh, you know, in In These Times magazine. And we have been talking uh, with Rebecca Bo Commerson. And uh, we've been talking with you, Dania. I welcome you to the show, Dania Rajendra, uh, about the lessons of how we need to organize, how the left, how progressives really um we're not, our numbers are not small, and we are not, we're not, not powerful. We're extremely powerful. And, um, and if we get a chance to make our case, and if you support independent media, you would be surprised at how many people are on, we're on that side. You know, we, we want to end poverty. You know, we want people to have well-paying jobs. We want, we want, we want, we want a ceasefire. We don't want anyone else to die, not just in the Middle East, but any place. So let's talk about Biden in 2024. Uh, I am Santita Jackson. Let me give you some of these headlines, everybody. At least 95 people were killed in blasts in Iran yesterday. Two explosions struck the central city of Kerman, where thousands had gathered to commemorate a general assassinated by the U.S. in 2020. A local official called it a terrorist attack. But a U.S. official suggested it was maybe the Islamic State. So we will see uh, as the investigation continues. Hundreds of documents in the Jeffrey Epstein case, Epstein case, were released yesterday. They mentioned people like Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Prince Andrew, and others who they are not mentioning in this headline in the Washington Post. It might shock you. Wow, everybody, check out the document. Um, because apparently he and Ghislaine Maxwell and their cohorts would entrap some of our top politicians and some of the most influential people in the world um, in honeypot situations, you know, sexually compromise them. And so that's what these documents are purported to show. Another COVID wave is hitting the U.S. The new dominant coronavirus uh, variant, JN1, which is adept at invading antibodies, uh, is here. Wastewater data suggests infections are as widespread as they were last winter. Former President Trump has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to keep him on Colorado, Colorado's primary ballot. Do you think that's going to work? We will see in Chicago. We'll have a high of 33 degrees, partly cloudy. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 27 degrees, clear with clouds. Uh, of course, we are in bowl season for the college football season. That's coming up in the NFL. The Bears will be playing the Packers this weekend. The Vikings will be playing the Lions this Sunday. And in the NBA, the Knicks won 16, the Bulls 100, the Pelicans 117, the Timberwolves 106. In the NHL, the Chicago team will be playing the Rangers, and the Lightning will be playing the Wild, and those are some of the headlines. Biden is his own worst enemy in 2024. Time for someone else. Ouch. Ari. 
Ari, Ari, from your magazine, you are, you put all this stuff up here. In his fumbling response to Gaza, the president has redrawn the electoral map against himself. Of course, we've got Ari Boomcat, part of the Santita Jackson show, so excited that he brought this to us because we are now not two weeks away from Iowa. And while Republicans are organizing, Democrats, there's no opposition, there's no debate. There's nothing. What's going on, everybody? Rebecca Vokomerson, Jewish Voice of Peace, author of the upcoming book, Solidarity is a Political Version of Love. I can't wait to have you back on to talk about that. Uh, Daniel Rajendra, In These Times, Diaspora Alliance, Athena Coalition, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, and of course, Dwight McKee, noted social scientist, dean of students at the Ma'afa Redemption Project, advisor to Cornell West. Um, and he's been advising Reverend Jesse Jackson and so many people down through the years, Reverend Al Sharpton and on and on and on. And um, we're just excited to have all of you gathered here today. Give us an overview of this article, Ari. Biden is his own worst enemy, and he has redrawn the electoral map against himself. What do you mean? Absolutely. Um, and thanks so much again, Pampita and Dwight. Great to be um, on the show with you again. You know, Gabriel Winnett here um, in this piece, you know, really does a excellent analysis of what Biden and the Democratic establishment have essentially done to themselves and the position they put themselves in for 2024 um, right now. And it's disastrous. It's absolutely disastrous. And one of the things that um, Winnett points out in this piece is essentially the president of the United States really ignoring the will of the American people. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen is that the overwhelming majority of American voters support a ceasefire. We're seeing the overwhelming majority of young people support a ceasefire, support Palestinian liberation and Palestinian rights. We're seeing a overwhelming majority of Muslim voters, um, particularly in swing states like Michigan, um, say that they will not vote for Biden because of his response to Gaza. And, you know, one of the things about Biden's response to Gaza is that it's frankly insulting to the American public in so many ways. And one of those ways that we've also pointed out in, in these times is that Biden has done everything he can to facilitate weapons transfers, to uh, basically make it so that all of these uh, intense bombs that are being dropped on Gaza, all these thousands and thousands of American-made bombs, um, are easily facilitated. He's doing it without congressional oversight on a lot of these things. He's really sneaking around on it and it's really deeply deeply insulting and so we're not is you know really arguing here that biden has biden's democratic coalition that was once you know really helpful um to getting him elected has completely fallen apart has completely crumbled and that his chances for victory in 2024 are really really slim and it's time for someone else and one of the people that we're not points out here as a possibility for us moving forward is Andy Levin, the former uh, Michigan congressman. And there are a lot of reasons that Winnett points out Andy Levin as a possibility um, to uh, run in the primary here. And, you know, one of those uh, things is that, you know, uh, Levin 
you know, knows APAC very, very well. APAC really went after him on deeply left um, election and largely responsible for you know, his loss there. Um, he can talk about APAC. He can talk, um, but it's not just about APAC that he can talk about. Because he can talk about the fossil fuel industry. He can talk about the military industrial complex. Um, he's very, very active in climate, which is obviously very, very popular um, with young people right now. And, you know, um, when out right, you know, quote, and his passion and clarity on labor and climate orient him to the issues at the heart of the younger generation's progressive politics. Levin helped direct organizing efforts at the AFL-CIO before his time in Congress. And today is focused on conversion of coal plants into parklands and clean energy generation. That's somebody that I think voters can get behind in many reasons, because that's somebody that does not support, facilitate, and enable genocide. And genocide is going to be a dividing line, no matter how much uh, the Democratic establishment wants us to forget it when push comes to shove. Has Biden become his own worst enemy? Has the electoral map, in your estimate, been redrawn? You foresaw problems for him four years ago. You talking to me? Yeah. Yeah. You foresaw oh, problems for him four that. years ago. Oh, no. I uh, so, I mean, do you think that he has withdrawn the electoral map? Has he become his own worst enemy? I mean, because Ari makes the point, he's ignoring the will of the American people. <laughs> well, I mean, now they're more... bypassing Congress to give more munitions to Israel. And Americans are like, wait, 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 wait. We want this to stop. Yeah, but this is bigger than a Biden problem. This is a Democratic Party problem. This is uh, this is political quicksand for the Democratic Party. Is what they've done is they have sub- uh, subjected all of their values to APEC and to the military industrial complex, and it's irreparable. It's irreparable right now, and so there is no candidate that I could name that can be a substitute. Uh, in this election, unless they themselves had taken such a high-profile position against the party and against Biden, is that they have some credibility on the uh, the, the, the uh, war side. And there's nobody I see right now in the Democratic Party who has that. I think this election is over for the Democrats, and there is cannot. There's no new coalition that can be organized uh, because not just based on the the issues of um, the domestic issues, but this genocide issue has neutralized whatever the progressive uh, Arabs in the swing states who are really the marginal difference. It has taken them out of the loop. It has taken young students, progressive students, out of the loop. It has taken a lot of the black community, which was their base, out of the loop. I see this as 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 a quagmire that they would not be able to escape from under any circumstances. I don't see no redemption. I don't care who you run. I don't think you can rebuild a coalition in a Democratic Party. Well, Bonnie, what do you see? Well, um, I just wanted to connect 
what uh, Reverend Dwight was just saying with what Gabe's arguing in his piece and what Rebecca and I are talking about in ours, which is the um, the places where we see the most hope, the most connection, the most possibility for another kind of way of politics is are the institutions and the formations where people get to participate as themselves and with other people across difference. And so in our piece, um, Rebecca and I lift up, you know, so much that's exciting about the UAW and a bunch of new um, union formations, of course. Um, The Amazon organizing is close to my heart. Um, But I wanted to say um, that that is possible in this moment because of the incredible racial justice organizing since the murder of Trayvon Martin and because of the incredible Bernie campaign and the DSA organizing that that is in relationship with and because of Me Too. The other side, the right, is about like racial oppression, gender oppression, and a commitment to a really narrow politics that limits our participation to voting. And what we see in these other formations is a way to be in society that is contrary to that. And so what I hear in Gabe's piece is like, who are the people that might represent that, who can represent a break from the insularity? And um, I got to say, I'm not as optimistic, although I'm a big fan of former Representative Levin, um, but I do believe in that transformative power of participatory solidarity. Rebecca, you want to say something? Well, I mean, I think I just want to take zoom it out a tiny bit more in terms of the fact that our democratic institutions are just really broken. Like, it's not just this election. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking about a couple of different examples. There's, of course, the example that we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, support for ceasefire. And like, I'm looking at a a poll from early December from Data for Progress, which shows that 76% of Democrats support a ceasefire. And yet we have all of our elected officials um, with some, you know, strong exceptions from the squad, but we have the sort of leadership of the Democratic Party um, just refusing to entertain the idea of supporting ceasefire. And it kind of, you know, it reminds me of other issues like gun control, where you have an overwhelming majority of the electorate who want gun control and they are, and, and poll after poll shows that. And yet the, the lobby around gun control, around, you know, for guns is making that next to impossible. So I think we need to be thinking about, um, you know, what is, you know, and of course a big part of that is about money. So one of the things that's happening now is that APAC and other associated um, lobbying organizations on behalf of Israel, including KUFI, which is the Christians United for Israel, are pledging enormous amounts of money to um, defeat um, members of the squad, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, um, Jamal Bowman, others, to defeat them in the primaries. And so I think what we as a left need to be thinking about is how we both defend and expand um, how we have actual representation of our views within the Democratic Party, including making these kinds of challenges and, you know, on the presidential level, of course, but also in Congress, at city councils, at the governor's offices, all over. You know, and Rebecca brings up to me a very powerful point, because we're so focused on the presidency that we're missing um, local, state, the state legislatures. We're missing county elections. We're missing the discussion on poverty. 
you know, on prosperity wages, Ari. I mean, so much is being obscured in this moment, and we cannot afford that. I mean, poverty is rising in America. Homelessness is rising in America. In 99% of the counties, Americans cannot afford to buy a house. I mean, at the University of Chicago, Rebecca, Donia, Ari, Dwight, the undergraduate tuition is $100,000 a year. Who can afford that? Ari, help, help. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's disastrous. And, you know, In These Times is also working on a special issue right now with Debt Collective. And debt is such a fundamental and critical issue to every American's life um, right now. And the amount of student debt that young people are taking on, you know, has been absolutely crippling in so many ways. You know, Alex Kahn, our executive director, um, has a um, editorial that came out, I think, a uh, couple of issues ago um, that we'll be posting pretty soon. And it's called Don't Fall for the Horse Race um, Organized. And, you know, part of what Alex argues in this editorial is that, you know, a lot can change between now and the election. And if we look at history, we've seen that. A lot can change in a very short period of time. And I think that's one of the things that a sort of like growing cacophony of voices on the progressive left are trying to impart um, on folks right now, which is that our imagination has to be bigger than the rigidity, than the sort of establishment forces that normally make up the contours of our imagination. Um, we have to be able to believe in a better world to come. And, you know, Dania and Rebecca's article in so many ways is about how we can usher in that better world to come. And Gabriel Winnett's article also is about what can we do in order to usher in this better world to come. And I think that that for me is the really you know, clear and central question that everyone on the left should be asking ourselves right now, which is not how can we accept the supposed inevitability that is facing us right now, but how can we usher in a better world to come? Because we deserve that world. We don't deserve a world of Trump versus Biden. We deserve a better world. And Americans want it, and they've shown it in poll after poll after poll. They want a world based largely on progressive values. They want a world based where people are not saddled with huge amounts of student debt. They want a world where people can can either get free health care or at least, at the very least, afford their health care. They want a world with good public schools. They want a world with a clean climate. And that, if our leaders can't deliver that, we have to imagine situations in which leaders can. Well, you know, I've got... No, no, I've got less than a minute. You go on. Obama spent all the money in that bank. That account is overdrawn. Ain't gonna work this time. Hmm. To speak to that, we have Dr. Max Wolf coming up because you know what? So much of this is about the money. Uh, brilliant Dr. Max Wolf, this brilliant panel. Stay with me for a minute, everybody. 
What is the path forward? I think there is a path forward. I think that if you really, really, really dig down, and if we really, really empower our independent media, you will see that you are not alone. Michael Jackson sang that song. You are not alone. Uh, the progressive movement, progressive values are much more deeply held in the United States than we, than we say. But we're being told that a Bernie Sanders cannot win. We're being told that our point of view will not win, that the center must hold. That's not working anymore, everybody. <laughs> That's not working anymore. People need much, much, much more. And what did you say, Adania? You know, they're trying to impose a reality on us. I went to the grocery store. I know what's up with the economy, with the economy. It's tight. Let's talk about it on the San Peter Jackson Show, 773-763-9278. Back in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Happy New Year 2024. You know what time it is. It's Thursday. So that means it's Dr. Max Wolf's time on the Santita Jackson Show talking about the economy. And hey, Dr. Wolf, we are two, not even two weeks away from Iowa. And then there's New Hampshire. The Democrats, well, there's no contest there, although President Biden's polls are so low. It's very concerning that you have someone who's so unpopular who's running uncontested, basically. And so we've been talking with Ari Blumkatz, editor of In These Times magazine, about how President Biden has missed the moment on the Middle East. Um, he's missing the moment on a lot of issues, and the polls are reflecting that. We've been talking about how the left, how progressives, how popular progressive positions are, really, and how we can derive lessons uh, from uh, what we're seeing, you know, the, I guess, the battles within the Jewish community, how we can see how this family fight, if you will, can help the American family fight it out, hug it out, and win together. Uh, of course, Ari Blumkatz and, of course, Dwight McKee, Dr. D, who we affectionately know as brilliant social scientist, advisor to uh, presidential candidate Professor Cornel West, and, of course, the dean of the Ma'afa Redemption Project. And, um, Dwight McKee, you were making your point before we pivot to Dr. Wolf. I almost slipped and called you a reverend, Dr. Wolf. Please forgive me. Oh, Dwight? It's more than church. You'd have probably to beg forgiveness of there than me, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got you know he missed his phone. He is a comedian. You know this, <laughs> Dwayne McKee. Uh, your thoughts about twenty twenty? Well, you know what? I'm going to ask you and Ari, and then I'm going to pivot to uh, to Doctor Wolf about your thoughts about twenty twenty four. Well, I'm just saying that that the uh, the coalition that would be the Democratic Party is so anti genocidal and so anti these wars that I think you pretty much, for the most part, lost them. I think that, you know, I don't think they're necessarily go independent, but I don't think that there is anybody in the Democratic Party who they're willing to really jump out with because they have not been uh, hardcore against these wars. There's no name that you could call 
Uh, I think Kennedy, had he been had not been so hardline for the war, I think he would have had a, a shot to pick up the, the progressives. Uh, Cornell West, I think, has a shot to get a lot of the uh, extreme progressive votes. But I don't see anybody in the Democratic Party been able to emerge, to been able to, to garnish those votes. And um, I just think we, you know, we just kind of kiss this one goodbye. Maybe in four years, when there's a reset, and the Democratic Party will come around and be able to, you know, to retool. But as it, what I see now is I don't think there's any hope for that party for this election uh, on the presidential level. Ari, your thoughts? I mean, because, look, Levin took a real big hit. I mean, this is someone from an iconic Democratic family. And APAC came after him with such viciousness. What say you? Yeah, I mean, you know, APAC's back at it again, you know, as we talked, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, too, about them, you know, throwing around $20 million to try and get, you know, people to run. And they've, you know, dedicated... I think some hundred million dollars to go in after progressive, uh, you know, uh, candidates um, next election. You know, I think, you know, Joy, a couple of things that you're saying like really resonate um, with me, you know, and one of them is about the sort of complete failure of the Democratic Party. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned a little bit before, as much as I'm afraid of Trump, I'm equally afraid of the Democratic Party that thinks it can get away with facilitating, funding, engaging, and enabling genocide and don't get our votes. Um, that absolutely frightens me. And I think we are at a place where we need to question whether or not this Democratic Party has any future whatsoever. And I think that's been a question for many um, election cycles right now. And I think it's a really critical question right now as well. One of the things that you also suggested was that, you know, uh, we might be in a situation right now where we might have to sort of, you know, throw in the towel on this one. And I think in some ways that might be a little bit of a reality, but I also, you know, one of my friends who's a organizer here in Chicago, um, Ashley Bohr, keeps, you know, trying to remind me of the quote from Gramsci, um, which is pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will. And that to me is something that I'm really trying to hold really close right now, because I don't think we can give up right now at all. I don't think we, because I think giving up right now means we're giving up on Palestine. I think giving up right now means we're giving up on the, you know, thousands, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands that don't have adequate health care, whose prescription prices are too high, um, and who this next election, whether it would be Biden or Trump, will be completely disastrous on so many levels. And, you know, one of the things that um, Gabriel Winnett, you know, notes in this article is that, you know, maybe Andy Levin doesn't have the best shot in the world. But, by running on an explicitly anti-war message, Levin could open up the space for other candidates who might be more likely to win the nomination in the election, but have been unwilling and honestly haven't had the courage to come out against Biden. And, you know, there's like several people here that we can imagine um, as folks who could, you know, really, um, you know, pose a significant um, challenge to Trump and could potentially 
take uh, the election. But if we continue on the road with Biden, if we don't offer viable alternatives, we are destined for a destination that is already predetermined. And that absolutely terrifies me. Hmm. Well, I've queued it up for you. If I can say, okay, Dwight. If I can say real course. quickly, I'll be real quick. It's so Dr. Wolf can get in, but I don't think we should stop. We stop fighting. You always fight, but you have to have to really find now who your enemy is. And so that which we thought was our ally, we find out really is our enemy when we deal with our uh, basic values, our core values, which is life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And when you look at them giving the, the license to bomb these children uh, by the thousand, then they are not, they're no longer salvageable in the, 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 the uh, when you deal with, you know, the core values of decent people of goodwill. And so you never stop fighting, but now your, your allies really are your enemies, are our enemies, and we have to fight them too. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what they say in politics, no permanent friends, uh, no permanent enemies, just permanent interests. And maybe this is moving us to principle based politics. I don't know. Um, the economy, I think that we might not even be having this discussion if people felt better about the economy. Dr. Wu, your thoughts about any and all of these things. Yeah, so I think most of these things are driven, as is this discussion, by frustration and the collapse of the center in American economy and polity. Right? So part of what you get when you have a large middle class, in a general sense, whether it's accurate or not, that people have a path forward, is you get people who will kind of agree to the moderate solution. When people feel frustrated and they don't think they're included, again, whether they're right or wrong, and they don't think there's a path forward for them that's appealing or dignified, again, whether they're right or wrong is hard to tell and of almost no material impact, then you don't get the middle. You get the extreme solutions, right? And I think that Biden suffers from a massive enthusiasm gap, but I also think he has a lot more supporters than the guy he's running against. So I think conversations that frame as Biden versus an ideal progressive candidate who's never been anywhere near the White House ever in American history, and if they got really close, they tend to have accidents that involve someone else's firearm, is a hard frame because it will just always highlight the, the shortcomings of the Democrats, which are usually real, right? That being said, I think you also need to reframe the issue in the Middle East. Respectfully, I think the genocide term's thrown around a lot. I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think it fits the bill here. And I think this war gets a lot of attention, as it should. A lot of innocents are dying, which is atrocious. And it's a standard body count for a standard war. Fought in an urban area, where, which is unusual. Both sides seem to be excited about measuring success in body count. So there's tons of body count measure. I would just remind people that the casualties in Ukraine are probably on the order of 15x, right? But Ukraine needs to keep people fighting, and it's not an insurgency. It's an army, and so it tries to pretend it's not suffering what it's suffering. If you're an insurgency group in a crowded urban area, you're going to have high casualties. You're going to get to count those casualties, and you're going to tell this story with plenty of truth in it about how everyone who died is a child clutching a teddy bear. And it will be true often, but it's not 
of the impact in American foreign policy or American life that a lot of people think it is right now. It's the hot button issue. And I think it's better to have a longitudinal plan than to sort of be very focused on the outrage of the moment, even though it's real. And it will sound immoral to hear someone say that when that's what's on everyone's lips and in everyone's mind. But I think the problem Biden has is that he is, which is what a national political figure is supposed to do historically in a major party. He is disappointing, but just decent enough to be acceptable to everyone. That's the model of American politics for 80 years. And he is very much within it and probably has been most of his career. And he's a creature of those structures. And the job of those structures is to keep things going more or less as they are, a little better here, a little worse there. I think that's against a radical national socialist agenda. So if it were the case that we all believe that Donald Trump is going to win this election, it would be incumbent on us, if we care about any of the things we say we do, to be pulling out all the stops to working on it. Because whatever you think is most important to you, race relations in the United States, the future of the Palestinian people and their aspirations for a true and independent statehood, peace around the world, all of those will be decimated by a re-election of Donald Trump as against Biden. The moderate disappointment is better than getting beaten with a shovel, and history will judge us accordingly. Right? As we sit around and judge people other places, often rightly, for their leadership, we will be judged. And Donald Trump will usher in a rapid decline of the U.S. And a lot of people don't like the U.S. empire, which I understand. And they imagine a scenario in which the decline of the U.S. empire brings forth some progressive Shangri-La. But where we've seen it, it brings forth things so horrible that sometimes some of the people actually want the empire back or they elect or bring to power or whoever rises to power is worse. Because just, you know, you know something and you don't like it and it collapses does not mean what comes in behind it is better. It just means it's different. And when people are angry and they've been abused a long time and they're disappointed, they tend to feel like, let's smash it because anything will be better. Totally understood. Almost never works if you know history. Almost never works. Well, let me ask you this. Do we do we long to have the empire back uh, because we want the empire back? Or do we long to want the empire back because we're afraid of what the new, of what goes into building a new future? I mean, because the empire None is not above. for people. Um, but I'm not, saying it's not working. Slavery doesn't work. Course. Stealing people's land doesn't work. All these things are not working. You're watching the global well, north. Think you're seeing the global South rise, and they're saying, "Wait a minute!" I mean, the ICC. I mean, there is a real movement afoot by South Africa, and and more and more people supporting them to to take Israel to the ICC. Now, I mean, it could be symbolic, but there's something else going on in the zeitgeist. Okay, I think the Israeli state has been highly unpopular for a long time, particularly in South Africa, mm-hmm. for a set of reasons. That government is also in South Africa, it's also hollowed out, corrupt, and on the precipice of its worst unprecedented electoral loss ever. It's coming this year. Look, the plates are moving. The U.S. empire is in aggressive decline, whether we like it or not, right? So, like, that's a, that's a fact of history. What we're looking at is a disorderly decline into a fascist nationalism or an attempt to have something to do with the future separate and apart from critiquing the past, Right. And I think the ANC has issues. I also think this year 
where we're focused on the U.S. elections, which I, we're in the U.S., I get it. They have global implications. I agree. I would just pause people. This year, 4.6 billion people will vote for their national leadership in 63 countries. So, yes, the U.S. certainly matters. I'm not downplaying it. Global implications, global empire, global military, global economy. Totally. I teach this for a living. I get it. I agree. But the European Union is non-trivial as an election. South Africa is non-trivial as an election. India is non-trivial as an election. Mexico is non-trivial as an election. Right? If you start looking at what's up for grabs this year, more people will vote in 2024 in national elections than have ever voted in a single year in the history of the human race. Right? Even Putin is up for election. I don't know if it's a nail biter, whether he comes out ahead or not, but like it is still an election and it will be a referendum. Right. I think in India, it will be a referendum, too. And I I think that all over the world, there's a turn. And Trump was a big part of ushering this. America First was the only successful escort, like export of the Trump administration. And that was, you know, tribal nationalistic movements, me first, by any means necessary, everywhere. And those always create interesting fractures in the world, but they always create fighting, right? And so the, the analogy I'd use for Chicagoland is people didn't like the gangs. They didn't like the organization of the criminal activity and the underclass in Chicago, and they broke it up. And they broke up uh, unstable truths that kept a lot of people alive. And what they ushered in was an era of lots of little principalities and massive bloodshed among innocents and young men. Right? So they said, we don't like this situation. Understood. There wasn't a slow, patient, careful way to figure out what you did and didn't like. There was an opportunistic land grab by real estate developers, and I'm sure other people on this call know the story better than me, so I'll yield instantly to their knowledge. But there was a grab for high-value property, and then folks were moved around, and they began fighting to get back to some paltry version of the unacceptable situation they used to have. That is exactly what we're seeing around the world. Change is not bad, but it's not always good either. Well, let me tell you what black people are looking at, who is more than a fourth of the Democratic Party. They're looking at $50 billion or more going to the Ukraine. They're looking at 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 all of this money that went to the war in in uh, Israel, they're looking at the migrants coming here, getting money uh, and budgets being put aside, and them getting housing, them getting jobs, them getting land. That for two or three hundred years, black people fought in bars and organized to receive, and in their minds, it's the black community. Now I can't speak for everybody. Is that again? They're at the bottom of the barrel, and they are mad about it. They are absolutely furious about it. And whatever, whatever good, whatever uh, credibility that the Democratic Party had for the Democrats, who has been the most loyal part of the party, for many of them does not exist anymore. And and many of them are j- jumping on the Trump side out of spite. And many of them are just staying out of the race altogether. In the black community, it's not they are not seeing it as a choice between uh two equals, two two evils. 
they see it now as a choice against somebody who lies to them, uh, pats them on the head, and then robs them. And they're tired of it. We're tired of it. That's what I speak. Are you here? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things here um, that I think are worth mentioning. And one of them is, how did this go for Hillary Clinton? Not particularly well um, for her or the country. I think this idea that a lesser of two evils argument is going to work out here is a misguided one. I think that what we are seeing from young people, what we are seeing uh, from a lot of voters of color, what we are seeing from Muslim voters, um, particularly in critical swing states, where Biden barely pulled this off and barely pulled it off when we're honest with ourselves because of organizations like Block in Milwaukee, um, because of organizations other organizations that turned out voters of color and Muslim voters um, across the country and particularly in swing states. And that's not going to happen here. And one of the reasons that's not going to happen is because genocide, um, and if we don't want to call it genocide, let's call it mass murder. Let's call it it's a war. It's a war. Children. Wait, no, absolutely not. Because a war would assume that there is one country with an army fighting another country with a army. And like in Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam or any of our recent wars? Because they're all like this. Yeah, the war, well, the war on terror was a misnomer, too. But what I'm getting at here is that we are talking about a political calculation that Biden and the Democratic establishment are making that when things continue to heat up, that voters will you know, be, oh my God, Trump is so horrifying, it's the worst, we have to vote for Biden. And I don't think that's going to play out. I don't think that's going to work. And I think it's, if anything, at the very least, is a very, very risk for Biden and the Democrats to play right now with such a um, critical election at stake, with such a fascist person like Trump at stake. And why the Democrats and Biden would risk this when the polls are showing that voters under 30 are largely abandoning Biden right now, when the polls are showing that Muslim voters are abandoning Biden, when the polls are showing that Biden is losing in many ways to Trump already and to even other Republican candidates in uh, some states as well, like, this is like almost like the definition of stupidity is to keep trying to do something over and over again and thinking that it's going to work. So I don't understand why there's this insistence that we have to move forward with a program and candidates and a Democratic establishment that is clearly broken, is clearly struggling, is clearly flailing. And why would we not? Try something different. Why would we not shoot our best shot here? And Biden is not our best shot. So I'm not saying any of that, though. I haven't said a single one of those things. My point is that if your activism to make America humane, moral, to your standard, accountable, equitable, racially just, if that action is choosing a presidential candidate, you've already lost. 
whatever presidential candidate you choose. And a better person who loses versus a worse person who wins, that's a tough tactical decision, right? My point is that we have never gotten progressive social change, in my understanding of American history, from the leadership of either party. It would be exciting if we were able to, or if that was on the menu, it would certainly be worth ordering up. But I don't think that's ever happened in American history. And I think that I certainly don't know the sort of beat on the street in any particular community, especially outside the greater New York metro area or California, where most of my you know, kind of time is spent as an individual. But I know that we got to this moment with Trump because white working class Americans voted their own annihilation to feel powerful and send a message. And they get angrier and angrier because they're electing people who have destroyed them and their children. And I think, sadly, what a lot of lower-income Americans are doing now is desperately trying to dis- to survive, in part because of the COVID-era, whatever relief programs and interventions, some of which were pretty successful, in the short term, against the modest agenda, and alleviating poverty and desperation, were rolled back by the people they're about to vote for. And so I just sort of, I don't think I disagree so much as I think some of these debates don't belong to the space. In other words, which wonderful progressive candidate who will drive change in America is on the national ballot is an interesting theoretical exercise, but I've never seen it in American history, to my understanding, which is, of course, not everyone else's. I've got about, a, well, I've got about 30 seconds. How do you want to close this out, Dr. Wolf? I welcome the opinions. If the Democratic Party isn't driven to the left by a large activist movement with whom they have very difficult relationships, it becomes very difficult to tell it apart from the Republican Party on a number of issues. I think the candidate the Democrats picked is now a little bit of an anvil as opposed to a lift. But I also think that is the strategy, highly risky, which is boring, not a lot of passion, not a lot of risk. Just go with the guy who isn't going to burn it down. And as much as Santita is elegant enough not to like this sandwich, this analogy that I use, if you have two entrees to choose from, and one of them is a fecal matter sandwich with razor blades, I'll have the other one. I'm not going to spend my time and invest all my passion in option number two, but I am real interested in door number two. Hmm. Well... Everybody, can't wait to be with you tomorrow on the Santita Jackson Show. Happy New Year, everybody. God bless you. Have a great one. Thank you, Henry, for a great show.